Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast. This is Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, your host for the show. And I'm not going to waste a lot of time. We're going to get right to the action. Two guests today, my familiar partner, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, four years running now. We'll break down the storylines of the week, his favorite Lincoln Riley play call from last weekend, and talk a little bit about this Notre Dame matchup on Saturday. And then we bring in Tyler James from Rivals Notre Dame site to give us some in-depth insight from the other side of this pivotal, pivotal matchup between the number six Trojans and the number 15 Fighting Irish as USC continues its push for a potential college football playoff berth. And Caleb Williams continues his push for a potential Heisman Trophy. So let's get right to the show. Okay, no time to waste. Let's get right into it with our resident Trojansports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback, Max Brown. Back on the show as usual. Max, how goes it? Goes great. I just got uh, one rivalry win and got a, hopefully another one here uh, this weekend versus ND. In the middle of the gauntlet right now, this three-game stretch of uh, ranked opponents that will obviously dictate USC's uh, season and where it goes. Before we get into all the the Trojan stuff, though, I, I have to give a shout-out to whoever stopped me walking into the Rose Bowl last weekend and said, hey, I listen to you and Max every Friday. Love the podcast. So, there we go. Love to hear that. It was nice to hear, and I was I was kind of frazzled in that moment because me and Adam Grossbard from the OC Register had gone on a Australian walkabout to try and find our credentials, uh, getting sent eight different directions by different security guards. And so by the time I finally got there, we were going to the elevator when this exchange happened, and I was just uh, exhausted and uh, exasperated with the process. So I did not catch the name but I really do appreciate that comment, as I'm sure Max does. And, and thanks to everyone who keeps listening each week. The numbers have been great. Okay. As mentioned in the uh, preview at the top of the show, we will have our Notre Dame insider Tyler James on after Max. But we will talk about Notre Dame with Max. We'll also talk about the game last week. And obviously, lots to cover from the 48-45 win over UCLA. Max, you, you watch a lot of games all season. You, you get out to a lot of games all over the country. Where did that game rank in terms of most exciting, best game you've seen this year? The answer to that, I can point to my wife. I got my wife to sit down with me and watch the entire game start to, start to finish. So it must have been, must have been a good one for, for that to happen. Um, no, I mean, I think it was number one. I was a little bit biased. I was on an airplane for the USC-Utah game. So that one, my experience there was uh, – a little bit, a little bit rougher, but no, it's it's right up there. And I mean, it, what was cool is you, you go into certain games with a certain level of expectations, and usually it's hard to match that or live up to that. And this game did. I mean, to have the Fox big time crew to have it on the road, which hey, I love the Coliseum, but there's some some about road games, especially when teams, uh, especially when it's USC, because everyone everyone seems seems to hate us. But it was big time. It was fun seeing Caleb Williams and. We talked about it last week, but I think nationally the narrative has shifted with Caleb in terms of uh, people are not just viewing him as a really good quarterback, and hopefully he has a shot at New York. So now he is in the thick of the old Heisman conversation. And, uh, no, the game was phenomenal, and it was cool to have it be uh, be a shootout, especially as, a, as an offensive guy myself. Yeah, we're going to give you your props there on, on the Caleb uh, Heisman 
uh, hype, which you delivered before the game, and now everyone else is kind of picking up where where, where you were uh, starting there last week. But uh, I was asked on our message board if it was the best game I'd ever seen, and it's such a hard question to answer. This is my 13th year as a full-time college football beat writer, uh, six years covering Coastal Carolina, two years covering the Gators in Florida, and now five here with USC. And off the top of my head, just uh, only a handful came to mind that could rival this one. There was a wild four-overtime game with Coastal Carolina. I think it was against Furman. I mean, some of those FCS games get, get a little wacky now. Um, that, that was wild. A couple games from my time at Florida, Gators beat LSU in Baton Rouge on a goal line stand at the end of the game. And I was standing behind the end zone for that. And it just went from uh, insanely loud to uh, eerily quiet very quickly. That I'll never forget that one. Uh, you know, some of the wild comebacks that USC had during the 2020 pandemic season, the UCLA game that year, which was a high scoring close game and involved, uh, I think, three touchdowns in the fourth quarter from the Trojans to come back and win that. But uh, this is definitely up there. And when you factor in the importance and what was at stake and all that stuff, man, what a victory for this team. And uh, for it to happen the way it happened, we'll get into Corey Foreman and give him a longer segment here. But for him to be the one that ends it, for Caleb to deliver his Heisman moment or his latest Heisman moments, uh, for it to be against a rival, just uh, really hard to beat everything we saw in that game. Let's start with Caleb, Max, and, and, and you were beating the drum on this podcast last week. I've uh, I've been feeling this way for a few weeks. So I just didn't see how anyone else had a better case or had the opportunity to make a better case with what is ahead. And to go out and have 503 total yards, the most yards by any player in the history of this rivalry game – USC UCLA is a statement and they needed everything he gave them. So it wasn't like, you know, you're tacking on late stats there to do it the way he did. It was, I think most impressive. And he shakes off the early interception and then was just dialed in from there. What'd you like most about Caleb's performance last weekend? Yeah, I'm I'm continuing to to be super impressed with everything that he's, uh, he's bringing to the table. He's got a few things, working in his favor from a from a Heisman perspective. I mean, he's got one, the on-field play, which we've all seen and we've all seen all season. I mean, the consistency's been phenomenal. And you also get the sense that him and not only, I feel like this team in general, like rises to the occasion in some regard with these bigger games versus the, the lull and, the, and, the, and the, the three weeks prior with the, the weaker stretch there. But he's got that going for him. The fact that, I mean, his accuracy, the way that he's protecting the football is remarkable. Like, I, I, I can't recall a college quarterback that is this aggressive yet also has the ability to protect the football as well. Like, usually when a quarterback has a good year and only has a couple interceptions, it's there's some nature of, hey, he's more conservative with the football or you're, you're looking at him taking checkdowns and whatnot. There's none of that with Caleb. He is full throttle every single drive, and, uh, and that jumps out to me. And then – from more of an outside perspective, I think I think he's the most valuable player in college football right now. And I know it's not the where the Heisman Award is. The Heisman Award is for most outstanding, which you can you know get get in the weeds there of how you how you define that. But I think it's clear that he is MVP just from the story of hey USC was four and eight a year ago to then where they're at now. They are not here even remotely here without Caleb Williams. And then two, I think. 
Um, when you look around the, uh, the the college football landscape, this past week, it's terrible news, but Hendon Hooker gets injured from Tennessee. Blake Corum gets banged up from Michigan. And some of these other guys that were in that same tier of him um, have, have fallen off a little bit. And it really feels like it's a two-horse race between him and C.J. Stroud, which obviously he has a uh, – he has a huge game this weekend. So Caleb is right there. To me, he's he's the favorite just based off statistically and the impact that he's made to his team. But he's obviously got a huge, uh, huge data point this weekend again versus Notre Dame. We've said it so many times this year that you have to keep in perspective that this has all happened in a year to go from just the absolute nadir last season to talking about a Heisman favorite, talking about college football playoffs, Pac-12 championship game next week. Um, and it's it's relevant to mention again now because we're coming up on almost the exact one-year anniversary of when they did steal uh, Lincoln Riley away from Oklahoma. And I got to talk to some of the guys this week, and I'll probably write the story for next week because I think next next uh, or this Sunday would be the, uh, the year. Um, but just recalling that last week of last season where – USC has to play Cal kind of after the, the fact, after the end of the regular season, do their reschedulement, and there's just no buzz for that game. But Lincoln Riley is watching practice. Alex Grinch is watching practice. And it's the player's first kind of impression of him, his first impression of them, and to the, and the go from that point to this year. But, but I was asking the players if, if they felt, what they recalled from that week, that they felt like they were auditioning in, in that practice with him watching Brett Nealon said, you know, he saw some guys going a little harder, and that definitely we were aware he was there. Justin Dietrich said, you know, by that point, so many guys were, were so checked out and done with the season and didn't want to practice that I don't know if there was a, a lot of that. But he goes, everyone was kind of buzzing about, you know, there's rumors that Riley's going to cut all these players and what's going to happen. So a lot of uncertainty then. Um, just an incredible one-year story again. Let's – Talk about the playoff rankings real fast. I come out Tuesday. USC is slotted sixth behind LSU in the fifth spot. Two-loss LSU ahead of a one-loss USC team. And ESPN had, obviously, the CFP chair Boo Corrigan on. He's the AD at NC State to explain that 5-6 decision. And he said there's reasons for USC to be five. There's reasons for LSU to be at five. As we looked at it, the wins over Alabama and Mississippi carry the day, more so than the wins over UCLA and Oregon State. The Trojans' good win on Saturday was 48-45. I think some of the members of the committee, as we looked at it, wanted to see a little bit more from their defense. LSU has two losses. Now, this is all moot in the end because either LSU is going to beat Georgia in the SEC title game and be in the playoff, or they're going to lose, and the path's there for USC. But anyways, Max, any, any thoughts on the rankings and – and just how that playoff path looks right now. You said it. The tone was as if they were comparing two one-loss teams. It's just not the case. LSU has another loss, which that's the biggest data point of, of any of those data points. So I was uh, I was not surprised USC was six because I had a feeling the committee could go this way, but it doesn't make sense. I think his, his whole quote is, uh, is full of some contradictions. One, because the loss, and then two, he's giving – um, LSU strength for a road win versus Ole Miss. Well, look at where Ole Miss is at. They're 20 in the country. Oregon State is 21 or 22, and USC is a road win against them. And I'm not naive to 
the optics of a Mississippi road win versus a Corvallis road win. But I, but you can't have it both ways. You can't give compliments to a Mississippi State road win and then have them comparable uh, ranking wise to Oregon State, which. It's not insignificant that um, Oregon State's ranked. You got Notre Dame at 15. Um, obviously, that's a, a potential win if SC takes care of business this weekend. So I wasn't pumped on his comments. Um, I think there's some, at the end of the day, what's driving this is Alabama's historical prowess and the fact that they have a win over that, um, over the Crimson Tide. That's the, the feather in their cap that's, that's, uh, getting pushed forward but at the end of the day it's going to come down to to sc's defense they they got to show if we want to get if we want to jump lsu next week the defense for the trojans has to show up but you said it best take care of business sc will be in if sc wins out they'll be in they need some help from i guess lsu not taking care of business versus georgia but i'm i'm pretty pretty confident that'll happen yeah very confident that georgia wins that game um you know anything could happen but not really fretting that. I think the one, I think the biggest concern would be if Ohio State loses to Michigan this week and then gets consideration as a one-loss team because they have a bit of a better profile than Michigan does. So if Michigan loses, I don't think they have a chance to get a thought over USC. But that, and and really, I think it, once the Trojans finish this stretch, if they have gone through the gauntlet, beating ranked UCLA, ranked Notre Dame, number fifteen this week. And we expect it to be Oregon next week, a top ten Oregon team. It's going to be impossible to keep them out once one of those Big Ten teams has a loss now, and, and and assuming that Georgia beats LSU. But last thought on the rankings, and I really wanted to ask Lincoln Riley this question. Unfortunately, we only got him one time this week due to the the holiday week, Thanksgiving. We got him Tuesday after practice, and I'm working on a feature story on Kyle Ford, so I. I started with a question about Kyle Ford. I wanted to hop back in at the end. I did not get an opening. I wanted to ask him what the family dynamic has been with him and his brother, Garrett Riley, who's the OC at TCU, both kind of competing for one of those last spots in this playoff picture. And I know that all USC fans last week were watching that TCU-Baylor game, hoping that Baylor would prevail and TCU rallies in the end with with the game-winning field goal drive. I would love to hear Riley's thoughts on that and what he thought watching that game, but did not get to ask him. Maybe it's still relevant next week. We'll see. But a neat little wrinkle in this in this whole uh, ordeal. You said um, I get the sense that from his little brother's perspective, he's kind of annoyed to be in the shadow of Lincoln. I don't know that to be the case, but just off seeing, uh, listening to TV comments and whatnot, I'd be. Uh, very curious to see how that uh, how that plays out, and obviously two uh, two bright offensive minds, both on a uh, similar upward trajectory. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no one saw TCU doing this this year, and they've had to rally back from games and have really been led by that offense. Okay, let's get back to the win over UCLA and the storylines we want to hit, and then we will talk to Notre Dame again. We're doing a shorter segment uh, this week, so we're going to pack it all in. We talked about Caleb Williams. How about Austin Jones? How about, uh, how about his quote after the game? I, I asked him, because uh, we saw him and, and Travis die on the field pregame together chatting. I just wanted to know what the, you know, what the nature of that conversation was, what, what they covered. And, and Austin Jones gives one of the quotes of the year and says, uh, he told me, he goes, people have forgotten about you. R- remind them who you are. They've forgotten what you've done to this point. Go remind them who you are. 
and he goes out with his best game of the season, uh, well over 100 yards combined, rushing and receiving, over five yards to carry, and, and just really, I think, maybe alleviated concerns about where the run game goes without without dying there. Yeah, credit him, especially for, for stepping in there. And, I mean, given where he was at in terms of a transfer coming in here, I'm, I'm expecting that he was had the mindset that I'm going to have a huge role this season, that it obviously waned off a little bit in uh, midway through the season. But it, it works kind of both ways, and I think we talked about it last week's podcast. I'm not surprised with the Austin Jones performance. I would, I, I assume you're kind of in, in, in a yeah. similar similar boat there, and I got the sense that the whole team was like, yeah, that's what Austin Austin can do. And so it works both ways. It's, hey, give crop, props to, to Austin, but it's also you don't want to like diminish the impact of Travis. But I think when he did get hurt, I, when Travis did get hurt, I was like, in my gut, I was like, the, the team's gonna, the team's gonna be fine. They got Austin. I, I was more wary, like leadership wise, how things would shake out. And the sense that I get is it's more of a motivating factor. Guys look at Travis and it's, hey, I'm gonna play for Travis, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, give the extra edge because I know he would type of mindset. And so, in a weird, unique way, obviously the team's not helped by by, by Travis being out. But I think that they're, they're fine. Like Austin showed that he can do him. He can do. He can. He can carry the load offensively, at least on the field. And then the leadership act, a, a aspect of Travis is still there. So, um, to your point. I think any concern with the running game was alleviated, and I also think it was good to see Darwin Barlow get in there. And the one run that he had where he's truck-sticking the, uh, the DB at the goal line, I mean, he's reminding folks that, hey, if I am called upon, I can get the, get the job done too. And I'm still a little curious of, you know, where is he at playbook-wise, and it feels like he was not even in the equation up until the injury. Like, why is that? Is it just that the two guys above him are so much better than him? To me, I think Barlow is a good player, so it's good to just have him in the fold. And then uh, the Berlique Browns usage was what I expected in terms of you're not going to ask him to be an every down back. He does not have the capacity to do that right now as a true freshman, which is fine. Um, but he can have a series there, a series here, and uh, certain plays that you can uh, you can call them with. And uh, I think the, the running back room is uh, is fine. They definitely missed Travis, but uh, no concerns on my end. Last two points in the offense, and you know I'm, I'm not going to miss the opportunity to mention that Kyle Ford had another big game. Three catches for 73 yards and a touchdown. And I, I got to say, I felt, I felt that my – my corner was being infringed upon on Twitter as people were going, I told you about Kyle. I told you I, I, I didn't hear all this chatter all along. I, th I thought I was kind of out there on my Island. I was getting, I was getting flack from other others on the beat that I was, I was so convinced that he could be a, a major contributor when it just hadn't happened through three seasons. Now all of a sudden everyone, everyone knew apparently everybody else knew. Joining your bandwagon. You've been, uh, captain in the ship for over a year now and and wherever marquis step lands when he has the big season next year they're gonna go oh we, we all knew we all knew there we go <laughs> uh but but ford again doing it with with limited targets and just maximizing averaging 24.3 yards of reception over the last two games over 20 yards a catch for the season which is really impressive had one of the best touchdown catches of the year on just a great play all around where where caleb had to throw it kind of high and and passed him to get it over the defensive back, but had that trust that Ford could go up and get it, and he just kind of goes up and backwards and, and hauls it in. 
Uh, another great game. The, the reason why I bring him up, though, I, I want to reference a great quote from, from Dietrich this week. And I think more than anybody, I mean, I wouldn't say that because we, we've, we've built up Travis Dye as, as for his, his leadership and everything. But Dietrich just embodies like that team captain mentality guy. And I asked him, I said, you know, you've been here throughout Kyle Ford's career. What have you seen from him? behind the scenes, how he's handled some of the adversity and having to be so patient. And Dietrich and goes, I actually, I had a talk with him. I said, I, I kind of related to my career. I didn't have the same injury stuff, but but I had to really persevere and, and just keep my head down on work. And then I eventually saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And I, and I told him if he just does that, the opportunity will come. And it was just a, a really kind of veteran statement and another glimpse into what he's done behind the scenes. We, we've, we told the story a few weeks ago about him asking to switch weightlifting groups so he could be by Mason Murphy every day and really push him and get the most out of him. It just seems like his value behind the scenes has been immense. And uh, bringing it back to Kyle Ford, I'm really curious, Max, if we now see a different distribution between he and, and Brendan Rice after a kind of a rough game for Rice this last week. We've, we've brought this up the last three weeks, but maybe now is the time where it changes. He certainly earned it. He has certainly earned it. We've talked about it before in terms of now that you have Jordan Addison, the speedster, um, take the top off the, off the defense type of guy. Obviously, the, the, the slot receivers that we've talked about with Taj and Mario and even Mike Jack a little bit. But the dynamic you don't have is Kyle Ford's physicality, and um, I love that. And I also love the call for Dietrich there. I think we're going to look back on this year. I'd love to ask Lincoln this question, assuming the program continues to rise and we're in a great spot again next year. We're going to look back and the offensive line and the fact that Lincoln was able to inherit basically three, four uh, returning starters that are really good college football players, and you didn't have to have any concerns about the offensive line. I know they've been sorting out the left tackle. I know they had to get Bobby Haskins, but big picture, you knew exactly the fact that your leaders on offense in the interior of the offensive line, you have, you've had no concerns there um, in terms of what those guys are bringing to the table. That's a huge underrated factor for why this team has transitioned so quickly. Because if they had holes offensive line-wise and that was something that SC was going to have to figure out, I don't care how good your skill players are. That would have been a recipe for, uh, for disaster. So Dietrich, Milan, Voorhees. Those guys deserve uh, a ton of credit. They don't get the headlines, but they deserve a ton of credit for where uh, where he's at right now. Yep, John Monheim too, and the, the leap he's taken. It, it seems crazy now that we did talk about the O line as the potential question or concern to some degree. We we knew the interior would probably be okay, but it's been great across the board. Mason Murphy emerging as a as a viable left tackle as a redshirt freshman already answers a question for next season. Uh, there will be more questions for next season. We'll we'll cover that in due time. But, yes, great point. That that has been the key to, to everything, really. Uh, I think getting Caleb Williams here and then re- retaining those linemen has really been where you start as an origin point for what this season has become. We could talk about Jordan Addison all day. Just another massive game. Just immediately looked like a Belitnikoff uh, winner again. He won't get there with the, the numbers overall because he missed, you know, basically three games. Uh, but – with him being back, it just changes the whole complexion of this offense. We are going to get into your Lincoln-Riley play call of the week. Let's do that right now, actually. I've been palavering uh, too much here. We're going to turn the show over to you with this, with our Notre Dame breakdown. 
Take us inside your favorite play call from this game. Favorite play call from this game this week. There was, a, there was another correct answer to this question because there was one play call that, that stuck out amongst the, amongst the rest, at least from Lincoln Rally's perspective. There's a the Grinch play call to dial up Corey Foreman at the end of the game was phenomenal as well. That's, a, that, that's, that's maybe the defensive play call. I'll stick offensively. Lincoln Rally, the touchdown to Jordan Addison. It was documented on the TV broadcast. But uh, to go over it again, because it's awesome, and it's classic Lincoln Riley. It's the touchdown where Jordan Addison lined up at running back and does the the streak down the right sideline from the running back position and just blows by the UCLA defense. The call itself is phenomenal, but the, the, the details behind it are what make Lincoln Riley next level and better than just your average play caller that might be able to dial up that same scheme but it's about when you call it, it's about the sequencing of when you call it, and it's about the pressure that you put on the defense. What do I mean by all that? Before that play call, one, he gets right across the 50-yard line. Anytime you get right across the 50-yard line and you're sitting in that 40, the, the plus 45 or 40, as a fan, a, 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 an alarm should go off in your head that, hey, offensive coordinators love calling shots at this point because that's right when you have the defense on your heels, if your shot play dialed up, it's one throw, catch in the end zone, move on for six. That's what when offensive coordinators love doing that. Lincoln Rally is no different. Right before that, though, he utilizes tempo. So he goes, hey, I'm going to have Jordan Addison receiver to the far left. I believe it was a trip trips formation. Receiver to the far left. We get a completion. We're hurrying up. We're using tempo. And we're going to shift completely to a different formation. We're going to have Jordan in the running back slot. Now we're going to have two tight ends to one side. And when you have two tight ends to one side, that forces the defense to shift how they view the strength of the formation. That means they're putting the linebacker that was once on the right side, now he's running to the other side of the field because UCLA is going to have a linebacker that's more run-oriented, which that they're going to go towards the tight ends, and a linebacker that's more coverage-oriented. He's going to go to the to the opposite side of the tight ends. And what that does is it creates lots of movement and confusion when you're going that fast by the UCLA defense. They weren't able to get lined up. And when all that's going on, all of that movement that I'm just talking about, John John Vaughn's UCLA linebacker, he is having to dissect both tight ends when they go vertical and Jordan Addison going vertical to the same side you got three offensive players for USC going to the same same side. I don't even think he realized Jordan Addison was in the backfield. It was happening that fast, and he he he, he delays for one half step trying to get through uh, Lake McCree. One half step. That's all Jordan Addison needs. The whole design, the timing, the sequence of the call was phenomenal. And uh, couple that with the skill of Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison. That's why you have an easy touchdown, and we're good for. One of those calls a week, it feels like, and uh, Lincoln's got a knack for having the, the perfect timing for uh, for making those calls happen as well. I love it. And just to add some more context there, we asked Addison after the game if he felt like the defense you know, didn't pick him up, and he goes, that was the whole point. I was told to, go out to, to hide my number in the backfield so they couldn't tell it was me. <laughs> so there was some intentional um, – yeah, whatever you want to call it there, where with things moving so fast, they, they probably look back and, and, and couldn't uh, immediately pick up that was him. But I also want to get touch on uh, Alex Grinch's play call to end the game. Please do. 
because SC fans, you got to realize, hey, I know this defense has given up a lot of points and the message boards might be mixed on Grinch, but we got to give credit where credit's due right there. Third and five, late in the game, a huge tendency for UCLA. I break down UCLA all the time on my Pac-12 show. They love that play call. They call it all the time on third and four to six. It's called mesh wheel. You're meshing the receivers and you're putting the running back on a wheel route. It is about time a defensive coordinator has decided to drop an end into the flat. Why is that advantageous? Because you don't allow Zach Charbonnet to be an option in the pass game there, and you put another defender in the window that they're trying to attack. Hence why Corey Foreman got that interception. It's great by Alex Grinch, knowing the tendency of UCLA, knowing what Chip wants to do. About time a defensive coordinator adjusted. And, hey, DTR, that's a, that's a missed read by DTR. He should have got to his fourth progression, and he has a guy open, and it would have been a first down. But the creative wrinkle, it's a different look, and it's putting another defender into the zone that you know UCLA wants to attack. It's a great call by, uh, by Grant. Great job by Corey Foreman. And I found out on Monday night, great job by Shane Lee, making sure uh, <laughs> everyone had the play call and was, was lined up, ready to go. Uh, it's, it's a great point because they, they, they repped that all week. Uh, Bryson Shaw revealed to us that, that Corey Foreman made the exact same play in practice, making an interception in practice on that play. So it was clearly something that, that they were expecting to go to. It's notable that, that he was the guy they, they had in that spot, given that they really have not treated him like a primary guy in any way. He's getting you know, 15, 17 snaps a game in situations, but they trusted him in that spot. They repped him in that spot all week. He... Shane Lee made sure that he knew it was coming, and uh, and he makes just the, obviously the biggest play of his career, but the biggest play of the season. That's now twice they have closed out a wild game with an interception, Oregon State being the other one. And um, Corey Foreman, real fast, I mean, I, I'm not ready to say that that is the springboard, and all of a sudden he's out there making two sacks uh, this week, and, and he's that five-star player we all expected, but it's clear that they that they do believe in him and, and, and they are they think he's making progress behind the scenes, he's coming along, and if fans could just have a little bit of patience and understand that maybe five star does not equal immediate production every time, and that's okay. It's it's where they get to in the end. And I don't know where he's gonna get to in the end, but that's the point. So you know, the Foreman has carried this massive load of expectations probably unfair because of that recruiting ranking. He's also been picked apart every single game. It's uh, it's on our message board every game. It's on Twitter every game. If he doesn't play like a five-star guy, and, and he hasn't to this point, uh, acknowledged, then every game it's, oh, this guy is a boss. This guy is worthless. And, like, just give it some time. Like, let's see where he goes. They haven't. You know, they have other guys right now that can play that spot. So it's not like he's holding the whole team back. Let him develop and see. And maybe this is such a, a relief off his shoulders, a confidence builder, that it does unlock a different level of comfort for him moving forward. I think that's well said. Yeah, I echo everything you said. I think uh, just with the expectations, that pressure can be, uh, you know, uh, a load to carry. And I think that's why maybe he had the reaction he did at the interception of, you know, celebrating immensely and for a long time and having all the teammates line up because it's just different. When you come in with the recruiting rankings that he had, that comes with pressure, that comes with expectation. And, yeah, like you said, hopefully this is the springboard for him to uh, 
start having fun. Not, I'm not saying he's not having fun, but I know how that can be in terms of that weight and that cloud. So hopefully this uh, gives him that confidence, that momentum to uh, pick up on this uh, moving forward. And you certainly have that perspective as as a, a top rank, the top rank quarterback prospect in your class. And how often did you hear about that over the years? How, how often was that brought up when maybe it wasn't the most applicable thing at that time? All the time, yeah. No, I I, I can definitely relate to aspects of, of what Corey might be going through in terms of it's just different when for everyone else on the team, it's okay if you're a backup for a year or two and you kind of grow into your role and you kind of get a longer leash because you're a youngster. But when you are that five-star guy with tons of expectations and it's uh, expected that you produce and produce at a high level, the just game being fun can be less. It's more of like a business aspect. And when you don't find success, those failures or pitfalls, however you want to call it, are then heightened. And then that can be a snowball effect in the wrong direction, which, again, I don't know how Corey, Corey's uh, mental makeup is and how he, he approaches day-to-day, but I know there's uh, there were certainly aspects of that to, uh, to my career that I'm sure are applicable to Corey. And I also think, I mean, I remember when I got, like, voted captain for the team, that was a confidence boost that, hey, I am doing the right thing. Or I guess maybe captain was a little bit later, but, like, I got an award, like a weightlifter of the year award, like as a, at the end of my second year, which is obviously where, where Corey's at. And that was a real grind up into that point. But you get a recognition like that, and it does give you confidence that you are on the right path. And, hey, just stick with the path that you're doing, and, and good things will happen. That reminds me a little bit of what Corey might be going through now is I envision he's been hearing a lot of the chatter the past couple of years and, and working through that, and it hasn't been great. It's not like this is something that you're – totally naive from but you get an intercepted versus UCLA to win the game and it's just one play but it, it, it embodies much more than that and hopefully it allows him to you know take a deep breath trust that process and know that hey if I just keep chipping away at this thing sure it may not have happened my first year or first two years at SC but you use this you build on it in the off season, and hopefully he's uh, he's a monster next season and what exactly that uh, like you said, it's all getting to the same point. It's just a, a different way, uh, different way of getting there. Hopefully, indeed. Well, real fast, just to close. Like I said, we'll go in depth on this matchup with Tyler James, our Notre Dame insider. But we have to get your quick thoughts, Max. Notre Dame starts three and three this year. That they had a loss to Marshall. They lost to Stanford, and people are just panicking about the Marcus Freeman era. And they've won five straight since then. Um, it hasn't all been pretty. They had a close game with Navy, but they, they blew out Clemson. They blew out Boston College last week. And their defense has not allowed any team to reach 400 yards this season. So that is going to be the really fascinating part of this matchup. USC's highly uh, you know, extreme offensive potential versus defense that has consistently uh, ground teams down. What are, what are your big picture thoughts on this matchup and what stands out? This one's a weird one for a few a few reasons. I mean, like you referenced, the sky was falling for Notre Dame. They started 0-2, and, and then they progressed to 3-3. Three and three. They've lost to Stanford, which Stanford is the second-worst team in our conference, and it's not a, not a good football team. And they, you could make the argument, should have lost to Cal, which yeah. is a bottom-threshold team in the Pac-12 as well, yet they're 8-3, number 13, or I guess 15 team in the country. And so it's bizarre. And and in one way, hey, we've given Lincoln Rally a lot of credit, obviously, rightfully so. But Marcus Freeman, I mean, that ship was going downhill, and the fact that he's right at this thing, and it's it's going to be a 
solid season for Notre Dame, he deserves some credit there because that could have got ugly, ugly in a hurry. Um, specifically to this game, though, it's bizarre. Uh, they're able, they've been, they've been able to put up points. Yet you look at what they're doing statistically, and it is not impressive at the quarterback position. Um, it is impressive in the ground game, but it's not like the stats are just going to blow you away. Yet they're still able to find a way to put up points. The biggest thing is, and I, uh, I had a, a Notre Dame guy on uh, on SiriusXM with me yesterday. Uh, and it's going to come down to True Pine, their quarterback. He started the season as a backup. Uh, Tyler Buckner, Southern California kid, was their starter. He went down early on in the season. Drew Pines put in there. Drew is a game manager. Like, when you think game manager, that that's what he's doing. It's, hey, I'm going to hand the rock off. I'm going to make a couple throws when they're there. He is not an elite quarterback. But what USC cannot do is give him easy throws. Force him to beat you. I would be willing to bet USC is going to pack the box. They're going to trust their corners one-on-one and say, Drew Pine, go win this game for your team. So that's the X factor for, for me. Defensively, it's a real good Notre Dame defense. Typical, I would say, in that manner for SC fans compared to what you're used to in the past. And then um, what else is typical is Notre Dame has an elite tight end. They have, you could argue, the best tight end in the country. I think the Pac-12 has two other real good ones as well with Utah and Oregon State's guy. But Michael Mayer, Notre Dame's tight end, he is next up as the next great Notre Dame tight end. Um, he'll be an NFL dude, and the offense from a passing game standpoint goes through 87, and uh, that's certainly the guy that Notre Dame's got to uh, got to keep, or uh, USC's got to keep under wraps. And USC fans still wake up with nightmares about Dalton Kincaid in Utah. Exactly. So uh, hopefully they've they have some adjustments from that game to this matchup. All right, uh, predictions to close it out. Max, what do you got? I think this is a tough matchup for Notre Dame. I, I think it's going to be a 40 to 20 win for USC. I think the Trojans take care of business. The first quarter is vital. One, because USC has started slow the past couple weeks. I'll look for them to change that narrative. And then two, I think if you can get Notre Dame behind and you're forcing Drew Pine, Notre Dame's quarterback, to play catch-up, that is not an advantageous matchup for them. Notre Dame has not seen an offensive attack like USC's. A lot of people are expecting a close game. I actually think USC handles, uh, handles, handles this one comfortably. I'm going 40 to 20. I was along the same lines. You're a little more bullish. I went 34-24 USC. I, I don't think this one goes down to the wire. And I can certainly see the way you just laid it out as well. And, man, if they win this game and we're going to Las Vegas next week, uh, probably Oregon. There's still an outside chance for Washington or Utah to slide in there, but probably Oregon. Max, thanks as always. We will catch up with you next week and have a happy Thanksgiving. You too. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and uh, let's go get a win. Okay, as promised, next into the show to give you much deeper insight into the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, our rivals Notre Dame insider Tyler James. Tyler, thanks for joining the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Massive game, uh, always for these teams, but especially this year with the stakes for USC and, and surely with what the Irish have been building the second half of the season and looking to finish strong. Let me just start by asking kind of the pulse of the fan base. Where are the fans with Marcus Freeman at this point? Um, confident. Uh, I think there was certainly a lot of doubt early in the season. Um, and then especially when you thought that things maybe had been righted and they tripped up against Stanford and that really um, started to cast some doubts on what, what was exactly going on in this program. But Notre Dame has, has righted the ship um, with five consecutive wins since that Stanford loss and They've won 
most of their games since that Marshall game. They only lost once after the Marshall game. And so they, I think they, they were sold on Marcus Freeman's ability to recruit. And that has certainly continued. And he's done a good job recruiting. They have one of the top classes in the country, according to rivals. But his ability to sort of learn as a first-time head coach was sort of the biggest question mark. And the fact that they lost to teams that they shouldn't have lost to in Marshall and Stanford was a big eyebrow raiser. But then the ability to beat teams like Clemson, it's like, well, that's what we weren't able to do consistently enough with Brian Kelly in the program. So maybe there's hope that Marcus Freeman can't get this to where Notre Dame wanted to in the next step. So obviously the challenge of beating this USC team in in Los Angeles will be another test in terms of what Marcus Freeman is able to do in, in elevating this program. And I think they're going out to USC with a bit of confidence. We'll see if that confidence is, is deserved or not. Yeah, that's certainly a, a, just a fascinating season to go from the, the lows to the highs they've had. What's been the biggest difference in getting things going the way it has been these last five games? And obviously we'll get more into the defense. I'm sure that's a huge part of it. But what overall changed for this team? Yeah, I think just sort of figuring out what it can do defensively, being finally getting to create some turnovers. The de- defense has been fairly consistent throughout the season, but they were giving up. They're poor in the red zone, allowing teams to score, and that's partially because they weren't creating any turnovers. If you're not creating turnovers in the red zone, it's hard to prevent a team from scoring once they get in the red zone. Uh, so that was a big problem for Notre Dame overall and defensively. And on offense, the passing game is still inconsistent. That hasn't necessarily been fixed. It's Michael Mayer and then who else? Um, Drew Pine is, isn't uh, an elite quarterback by any stretch. He's a first-year starter. He's had some ups and downs. And uh, he's a little bit physically limited. Like he's not he's not a prototypical sized quarterback. He doesn't have a huge arm, and so they have to have him make the right decision to put the ball um, in the right places to be able to execute their offense. Um, and so they haven't had to rely on him to do too much. The running game has really emerged. The offensive line has come together and been what we thought it could be. It wasn't necessarily that at the start of the season. That had something to do with. Uh, starting left guard Jared Patterson, a preseason All-American at center, um, being out with an injury. And he played against Marshall, but was still dealing with a lot of pain. And um, that, that didn't help their cause. And obviously, the first two games was a, was a different starting quarterback. If USC fans aren't too familiar with Notre Dame, Tyler Buckner started the season. He got hurt against Marshall, and Drew Pine replaced him. So I think they're in a better place in terms of what the offense is. I think if you could stop Notre Dame's running attack, then I think... USC would be in great shape, but I don't know that that's necessarily what USC's strong point is either. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a matchup of strengths in that regard. But, I, I mean, honestly, if uh, I think some USC fans might be even more worried about Michael Mayer, given that in their only loss of the season, it was Dalton Kincaid having the game of his life for Utah. That that really was, was the major problem for the Trojans. They just couldn't stop him. And uh, we'll see if the made any adjustments there and kind of containing a top tight end. What makes him so elite? Yeah, I mean, he can do everything, and they use him in different kinds of ways. He's not, like, the fastest tight end or the most athletic tight end, but he's, he's a big tight end. He knows he's very smart and knows how to use his body position to get open. Um, he's hard to cover one-on-one. He's just such a big guy, and he has great hands. Knows what he's Difficult to tackle after he catches the after he catches the ball. Not just like running over, he'll even sidestep you. He does some things um, for a big guy that are pretty impressive. Um, and so Notre Dame 
hasn't leaned on him terribly much in this last stretch of the season. The last four games, he hasn't had more than five catches in any of those games. Um, and early in the season, he was basically all they could do offensively, passing the ball, and they just haven't had to pass the ball as much later on in the season because the running game has been so successful. So he will be a tough matchup for USC. I'll be curious to see if what some of these teams, like like Navy Limited, just three catches, um, which isn't necessarily something you'd expect from a Navy team, but Notre Dame was able to have some success throwing the ball in the first half to other guys, so they didn't necessarily have to throw it to Michael Mayer. Um, so I, I think that will be a big focus of USC's defense. We'll see what sort of game plan they come up with. I mean, if I was the defensive coordinator, I'd focus on that. Let some of these other receivers who haven't proven to be consistent try to beat me. Um, but Michael Mayer has been in situations before where everyone knows the ball's going to him and they had to stop. But I think his most impressive performance was the BYU game. He had 11 catches for 118 yards and two touchdowns, and it was like every third down, everyone knew it was going to Michael Mayer, and BYU still couldn't stop him. Mm. And so we'll see if uh, that's the case against USC on Saturday. Well, moving on to that that run game, kind of give us the the complexion of this offensive line, experience-wise, who's really been the standouts, and then the, the two running backs who have kind of shared the workload there and what they've done. Yeah, at this point of the season, everyone's experienced because they've played all season. That's the been one of their fortunate parts. Once they got Jared Patterson back, everyone has stayed healthy on the offensive line. So the, the guards are, are graduate students. Um, they're very experienced in Jared Patterson and Josh Lowe. The tackles are the least experienced in that they're only sophomores, but Joe Alt, the starting left tackle, is uh, took over as the starter midseason last year and has continued from there. Blake Fisher actually started the season last year as a true freshman as the starting left tackle, then he got hurt played in the last game of the season in the bowl game, and then now he's been the starting right tackle all season. Those two are really impressive players, have bright futures. Uh, I believe Joe Alt is like the highest rated left tackle in the country, according to Pro Football Focus, um, regardless of class. So he's been having an excellent season. Um, and Zeke Carell is uh, a first-year starter at center, but had some experience playing some center and guard um, in, in backup roles. So they're a pretty balanced offensive line. I think they like to run left more than they like to run right with, with Joe Alt and Jared Patterson. That's a pretty um, intimidating combination on the left-hand side. But the right-hand side has really improved as the season has gone along. So they they feel pretty confident in the offensive line. Um, they've earned that confidence, and they've really sort of come together, got on the same page, and worked well in tandem with the running backs um, to sort of develop this running game that can do a number of different things against you. And it's been uh, Logan Diggs and, and Audric, uh, I'm going to mispronounce the last name. Estime. Estime. Yeah, and they're, they're an interesting combination. Audric Estime is an old-school physical running back. Um, he is a freight train coming at you. I mean, he can be elusive, and he can catch the ball, so he's not just, like, one-dimensional as a running back, but he is a bruiser. Um, we had a, we got a photo of him last week playing against Boston College where he ran someone over and he just looked like a snowplow out there. Uh, Logan Diggs is a bit more dynamic. He has really sort of emerged in the back half of the season. He came into the season with a shoulder injury and was still recovering from that um, and has really sort of embraced this tandem role with Audrey Gustave. Notre Dame at times will play both of them on the same field at the same time, which I think has been really hard for teams to stop. And and Drew Pine starts, they, they're averaging nine yards per play when they run a two-back set of some kind, and they don't do it a lot. I think it's in the 40s or 50s for the snap counts they've done after the season, but I'm curious if maybe they'll try to lean more on that against USC, and even just this past week against Boston College, they 
uh, introduced a three-back set where they put Chris Tyree, uh, a speedy running back who's the most veteran running back on the team but has had as much rushing success. Um, he can line up in sort of the slot and run some jet sweeps and stuff like that. So they're, they're going to throw as many different running options as they can at the offense. Notre Dame doesn't have a running quarterback, really. Drew Pine is not very elusive. Tyler Buckner was the original starter, um, and so they have to rely on those running backs to, to carry the running game. The matchup concerns for USC are obvious with, with that run game, with the physical offensive line, and, and with uh, Michael Mayer. On the defense, though, getting back to what they've done, to not allow any opponent to 400 yards is mighty impressive and uh, be a real test of strengths in that regard this week with a USC offense that has just uh, endless upside and uh, piles up yards and points and an Irish defense that has been so steady and consistent there. Who, who are the standouts on defense that have made it that way and, and what have been the, the very clear strengths that have kind of led that unit? Yeah, it's been a pretty balanced defense. I, I think the star players are Isaiah Foskey, the defensive end. He was who everyone expected to be a star player. He, he made the decision to come back and try to improve his draft stock. Um, he Just last week, he broke the career record for sacks at Notre Dame uh, with 25 career sacks. He surpassed Justin Tuck with that sack against Boston College. And so he is the, the pass rusher to be most concerned about. He's, he's solid against the run, too. He's not necessarily a one-dimensional defensive end. Um, and they have some a good amount of experience across that defensive line. And then at the linebacker level, they have been a little bit up and down, but have been playing really well in the in the tail end of this season with J.D. Bertrand being the leading tackler. Um, Maris Leofile is a very athletic kid who can play the run and the pass well. Um, and then the secondary is dealing with some injury issues. And so it'll be interesting to see what Notre Dame looks like in this game. Brandon Joseph has been out for the last couple of games with a sprained ankle, um, but he's expected to return. He is the Northwestern grad transfer, or not a grad transfer, an undergrad transfer, and who was a one-time All-American who had, has played some big roles for Notre Dame. He intercepted a pass against Syracuse to start the game and returned it for a touchdown, and he was part of the reason that Ohio State lost Jackson Smith and Jigba in the season opener because Brandon Joseph hit, hit him pretty hard. So that'll be important for Notre Dame to get back, but they may be without starting cornerback Cam Hart, um, who isn't necessarily their best cornerback, um, but he's their most experienced on the outside. Um, Tariq Bracey has been really good as a nickelback. They'll play him inside and outside. I'm curious to see where he ends up lining up the most against USC. It'll probably be dependent on where USC lines up, maybe Jordan Addison, stuff like that. And then the biggest surprise on the defense has been Benjamin Morrison, a true freshman cornerback who sort of, he didn't even enroll early. He came in in June, um, and he earned playing time from the season opener play against Ohio State and sort of raised some eyebrows. And then he's really come on strong. He has five interceptions this season, and those only came in two games. Two were against Clemson, including one return for a touchdown. Um, and then three just came this past week against Boston College. So he has been extremely talented and tough to complete passes on. Um, and so it's not just the interceptions. He's not giving up a lot of completions and getting beat very very often either. So uh, it'll be an exciting matchup to see how these guys can match up against this USC offense. Notre Dame has played some prolific offenses this season, most notably Ohio State to start the year um, and UNC um, in the, a few games into the season. Notre Dame did better on the scoreboard against Ohio State, but Notre Dame was really concerned, had a concerted effort to keep the ball away from Ohio State and limit their possessions. 
And then North Carolina, Notre Dame actually built a pretty big lead, a 24-point lead in the second half. And so some of their yardage and points came in what was essentially garbage time when UNC didn't really have a chance to come back. Um, so I'll be curious to see if the lessons Notre Dame gained and experienced a game playing against C.J. Stroud and Drake May, who were guys that were contending for the Heisman with Caleb Williams, um, can help them against Caleb Williams this weekend. Great breakdown. Very awesome stuff. Um, let, let me ask you more big picture what aside from being a rivalry game and the obvious implications there, what would this mean for Marcus Freeman for this program if Notre Dame can pull it off? Yeah, I think it's just a continuation of the positive trajectory of this program, and it's sort of like this is. I asked Marcus Freeman about this. It's it, in my opinion, this is sort of a matchup of contrasting styles. Like Notre Dame isn't a throw the ball around the around the field kind of offense. They want to run the ball. They want to play a good defense, and USC is, is sort of the opposite of that. Um, and Marcus Freeman has been very adamant since he took over the program that he wants to be an offensive line and defensive line to the program, which isn't like a novel concept at Notre Dame. But I think there's been some con- there was some concern during the Brian Kelly era if that was enough to win a national championship. Um, and so I don't. This certainly isn't necessarily what the final product will look like. Notre Dame's offense wants to be more dynamic than it is right now. But I think this can be sort of validating that what Marcus Freeman wants this program can be, to be, can go out and be a team like USC with an offense like it has um, and be able to maybe dominate the line of scrimmage offensively as well. So I think this could carry Notre Dame into a, an offseason where it wants to continue recruiting at a high level and uh, sort of um, back up what Marcus Freeman has done in terms of learning on the job in his first year as the head coach in Notre Dame. Yeah, that's the big question in college football today: is is if that, if a more conservative style can can still uh, be elite and get you to the top. When we've seen, you know, obviously even teams like Alabama and Georgia have really opened things up offensively and been able to put up a lot, a lot of points. And then certainly USC is going <laughs> buying in the opposite direction, hoping that a uh, uh, really leaning into the offense and hoping the defense is just good enough uh, can work for them. So very different styles, very interesting matchup. Let's get a prediction from you, Tyler. What What is your expectation for Saturday uh, for the score for this game? Yeah, this has been probably my worst season in my <laughs> 10 years covering Notre Dame and trying to predict the outcomes of their games. They've been such an unpredictable team. Times you think they're going to lose, they win. Times you think they're going to win, they lose. I'm not sure that I have enough confidence that Notre Dame can go in and beat USC with the way that USC's offense is playing. So I'm predicting like a 34 28 kind of game in favor of USC. I'm just not sure that Notre Dame can score enough points to keep up with USC, but I, I think they'll be able to keep it close. I don't think it'll be a blowout or anything, but I'm not sure that Notre Dame will be able to dominate enough offensively and control the time of possession enough to limit USC's offense. Well, I, I gave my prediction earlier in the show um, with our last segment, and it was 34-24, so we're not far off there in our assessment of this matchup. All right, well, we'll see if we're the smart guys or the dumb guys. <laughs> <laughs> you never know until it's over. Great stuff, Tyler. Thanks for taking the time to join us and safe travels to Los Angeles. Absolutely. See you this weekend. Great stuff, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Again, as always, uh, we have such a consistent and uh, loyal audience. Really appreciate that immensely. And thank you to Max Brown, as always, for his time and insight. And to Tyler James of our rivals in our damn site for his perspective on this matchup. 
Follow us on Trojansports.com for full coverage this weekend from the Coliseum, from this game, and from everything that transpires as we'll be covering every angle and looking ahead to the Pac-12 championship game next Friday in Las Vegas. So stay with us on Trojansports.com for all of our coverage, and we'll get back to you on the podcast next week before that game. Thank you.